0: Girls5Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and
1: be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.
0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 307th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Hulu's original series, The Handmaid's Tale. For your awards consideration in all categories, stream it now at hulu.com FYC. My guest today is the most commercially successful producer in Hollywood history, a man who has been called a dominant producer voice in a way that Hollywood has not seen since the Golden Era, The ultimate geek done good, a movie producer who is a legitimate household name, and one of the key figures, if not the key figure, in the modern Hollywood landscape. He was the architect of an unprecedented 11-year series of 22 intertwining superhero films. A venture which has been described as one of the most ambitious undertakings in Hollywood history, and the massive commercial success of which has been called a performance run that will one day be looked upon as nothing short of historic. Indeed, all 22 films topped the box office in their opening weekend and collectively grossed $8.2 billion domestically and $21.5 billion worldwide, making their producer, in the words of the Los Angeles Times, quote, the undisputed box office champion, close quote. The recipient of the Publicist Guild of America's Showmanship Award in 2013 and the Producers' Guild of America's David O. Selznick Achievement Award in Theatrical Motion Pictures in 2019... He also, in 2019, became the first producer to ever land a Best Picture Oscar nomination for a superhero movie, namely Black Panther, and presided over the release of the final installment of that 22-film series, Avengers Endgame, which became the highest-grossing film of all time. The chief creative officer of Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige. Over the course of our conversation in Feige's memorabilia-filled office on the Disney lot in Burbank, The ball cap clad 46 year old and I discussed his start in the business and how he came to work for Marvel just as it was getting ready to stop licensing its characters to other studios and begin producing its own movies. How he conceived of what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which kicked off with 2008's Iron Man and which thus far has extended to include last summer's Spider-Man Far From Home. How Marvel's 2009 acquisition by Disney has impacted the company and himself. And how a 2015 management restructuring came about, not least because of resistance from some to Feige's desire for greater diversity in Marvel's films, what it was like to close a chapter of Marvel's history with last April's Avengers Endgame, what we can expect as a result of his recent invitation to work within another Disney silo, Lucasfilm, as a producer of Star Wars, and what he thinks about the recent anti-Marvel comments made by the likes of Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. Great to have you on the podcast. Always begin with just a few basics here. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was
1: born in Boston, Massachusetts. I was raised in New Jersey, northern New Jersey suburb called Westfield Mm -hmm. until I graduated in 1991 and did the one thing I only ever wanted to do, which was move to Los Angeles to try to make movies.
0: And growing up, though, before that, you know, if we were to track down your classmates from school, would they remember you as one of the cool kids or the jocks or the nerds? You know, kids classify each other. None of the above,
1: probably. I I don't know that they would remember me at all. Although, (laughs) coincidentally, just the other day... I had gotten a bunch of stuff out of storage. I was going through some things and I found my old yearbooks and hadn't seen them in almost 30 years. And I'm not even in all of them because I used to wait at the back of the line, get close to the camera and then jump to the other side of the (laughs) camera. So my picture wasn't in the yearbook, but it was in, uh, I think my sophomore year and my senior year at any rate, they had been signed. Yeah. I was not the kind of person with a big social group that was like getting my yearbook signed by everybody. So I had no memory that there were even signatures in there. The point is, every single signature said, Good luck in LA. We know you're gonna make it big in Hollywood. You're gonna and I thought, wow, I was just like a one-trick pony it my whole life.
0: On like, that on was the it. Track. Well, so why? USC, why was that always the, and specifically the film school, which from what I've read, it was a bit of an odyssey getting in, but why was that the the, I got into the university right away. Yeah.
1: I'm not going to make any jokes about <laughs> controversies about getting yes. into USC, <laughs> but when I was in 1990 applying, I got in right away, early admission to the university. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was amazing. Yes. I did not get into the film school. Right. And wouldn't
0: for another five attempts or mm-hmm. so until my junior year seems like you were a guy who grew up really watching and studying movies even more so than reading and studying comics so why do you think there was even any road bump to getting in
1: oh I don't know I I I think it's uh, you know my grades were fine Mm -hmm. they were great they my SATs were okay Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's what they were looking at Mm -hmm. I hope that's not what they judge people on to let them into the film school I also think and had heard later that they accept more people when they're juniors. I was just applying every semester. Mm-hmm. And even if I had gotten in my freshman year, you have a lot of whatever they call Smart those Co- yeah, courses before you get into it. I wanted to go there because I first read about it in Dale Pollock's unauthorized biography of George Lucas, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they talked about this place that he went and Robert Zemeckis went right. and Ron Howard went and so many people went and I went, wow. I guess that's where you should go.
0: And Star Wars and Lucas and all of that had been a particular fascination growing up? Without question. So how did you, while you were at USC, I guess, come to know the Donners, Richard, who you have said made, quote, the most perfect superhero movie, close quote, Superman from 78, and his wife, Lauren Shuler, who is a producer. So the director, producer, couple, how'd you know them? And then why, when I guess there was a sort of decision forced about which you would actually be an assistant to, did you choose not your cinematic hero, but a producer? Lauren?
1: Early on, just a few months into film school, this was now the spring of 94, just after the Northridge earthquake. Mm -hmm. I noticed that a lot of people were getting these internships. Mm -hmm. And Back then, at least, they were unpaid, and there's a lot of discussion going on about that now, as there should be. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely an unpaid intern for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So my friends were going to places, and I was lucky to be in a position that I could a few days a week work an unpaid internship. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to do it at a place that I knew, Mm -hmm. a place I'd heard of, a place I'd be excited to be around, a place whose work I respected and would be happy to walk dogs and wash cars and (laughs) get soup and coffee, which I did a lot of. Right for people that I admired and and hoped to learn from. A lot of my friends were places I'd never heard of or small houses. So I went to the old Lucas Building in the old what is now the now gone version of the USC film school. And back then it was literal postings on a bulletin board. And there was one for the Donner's company, Donner Shuler Donner. And I almost couldn't believe it. And took the number and called it and wrote up my very first and very last resume that I'd ever typed (laughs) up and sent it in.
0: So there was, though, after that extended period of interning that I guess they both wanted an assistant?
1: Yeah, I had been there as an intern for probably about a year. One summer I was there and paid as the receptionist for a whole summer, which I thought was great. And then my last semester of film school, I worked there part-time as a paid PA, Mm -hmm. which I thought was the greatest thing. I did not attend my graduation ceremony <laughs> because I was working, and I thought that was better. Didn't Yeah, didn't yeah mind. I was excited by that. <laughs> um, yes, the story, as it was told to me, was yes, both Dick and Lauren needed an assistant at the time, and I don't know that it was really who would you prefer, mm-hmm. frankly, but they would say, just think about that. And yes, if it had been my first day there, I would have said, Dick, for mm-hmm. sure, mm-hmm. because I knew more of his work before I started, mm-hmm. of course, but having worked there for a number of years at that point i noticed that dick did a movie every few years and would be very focused when he was doing the movie mm-hmm. and when he wasn't he would be at home and he'd take care of the house and that sort of thing and lauren was always producing movies or developing movies and the people that had worked for lauren were being moved up into positions with more you know creative input
0: including your immediate predecessor scott right, stuber. Scott, scott stuber yes. yeah
1: exactly and that is how it felt like that was the road I wanted to go on, because being in rooms and having a creative voice in rooms is what I was most
0: interested in and most excited about. And in the course of those next few years of working closely with her, this is late 90s into early 2000s, Volcano, You've Got Mail, into X-Men, the, actually the first big studio movie made from Marvel content. Were you kind of coming to a realization that if you want to be a creative person in Hollywood, you can do that not just as a director, but as a producer? Yes,
1: which I had not thought about much going into it. When yeah. I think everybody goes to film school wanting to be a director and wanting to have creative authority as a director because I think that's what you learn is the creative authority on pictures. I always admired kids who would go into the film school wanting to be sound engineers or being interested in another more specialized field because I thought, geez, That's great, Mm -hmm. because you could probably focus, learn, and become the best there is, and many of them did Mm -hmm. and have, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, I want to be a director, (laughs) which is a very sort of generic idea when you don't know everything about it. But it was working with Lauren and working in those rooms and getting into the collaborations of those early projects that it became very uh, rewarding to have a voice in the room and the initial
0: little brain trust on X-Men 1. Correct me if any of this is wrong, but my understanding is X-Men is being made into a movie in partnership with Marvel, which had been around as Marvel films since 93, but basically just licensing characters and then making money off of merchandising. I guess the examples: Spider-Man to Sony, X-Men to Fox, Blade to New Line. But now it was Avi Arad who was the one that was saying, starting with X-Men, we can do more with this. And it was he also who sort of noticed something special in you on that project.
1: Avi very much believed in all of these characters and very much believed in the potential these characters had to be movies, I think, in years before that. And some of this is based on, you know, things I'd heard when I first started. Some of it is based on books Mm -hmm. that I've read about the time at Marvel before I joined. There was a fear that if you mess it up, you would devalue that character. And that's a fair enough fear because there had been some Marvel characters made into movies that were not shiny examples. (laughs) They didn't kill the characters, frankly, but they were not good. I think you can look back on them now and they're of a time and and I could make arguments for fun things in them, but they didn't light the world on Mm -hmm. fire. Avi very much believed that is what we should do and it was X-Men as the first that allowed him to keep pushing to do more and to move out to Los Angeles full-time. He was only coming to LA a few days a week at that point, being based in New York. I got to know him very well during the production of X-Men 1 and sort of became a person on the set in the production that he could call and get information from and be kept in the loop. And I was happy to keep him in the loop about things and how they were going. And for the most part, they were going well on that movie with that cast.
0: This may be apocryphal, but was there something with Hugh Jackman's hair where you intervened that sort of impressed him? Yeah, I think it's <laughs> I think it's taken on
1: life of its own uh, uh, in later years. But there was, yes, the very first day he came out on set and his hair was not Wolverine hair. Yeah. And in later movies, it almost didn't matter yeah. because Hugh was Wolverine. <laughs> Just the way in Thor, we really wanted him to have that long blonde hair, Chris Hemsworth, mm-hmm. in the first Thor film. By Ragnarok, Hemsworth is Thor. He cut the hair, it <laughs> doesn't matter. But it mattered in the first mm-hmm. X-Men movie. And it mattered in large part because the only reason it wasn't happening is there was fear of it looking silly mm-hmm. or fear of it being goofy. Mm-hmm. And I think Avi maybe even happened to call. I went, it's going pretty well, but his hair's not great. And Avi said, let's check it out. Mm-hmm. And he came down and we looked at it. And Brian agreed, and everybody, Lauren agreed, and we went into the hair and makeup trailer and just kept going, kept going, kept going. Heard, and I again, heard. you look at it now, and it's of a time, and it's unquestionably Wolverine's hair. Right. And a little nerdy trivia, you can go back and look at the very first image released, publicly released, of Hugh was, I think, in a Newsweek magazine of the old hair from the first day. Because I remember like, <laughs> oh, here's the first look. They showed the picture with the wrong hair! <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was asking me uh, for picture approval back then. That is But But uh, I think that stuck with Avi. I think that stuck with Avi as, yeah. oh, look, this, this person's paying attention to
0: his hair. One thing that Lauren remembers, and this was in a fairly recent interview, was, quote, when we were developing the X-Men movies, he, meaning you, and I had laid out a plan where the X-Men franchise should go. Fox picked another route, close quote. But it sounded from what she was saying like you were, even in terms of X-Men, before you had any real weight as far as decision-making, you were thinking it sounded like almost its own, uh, in terms of plotting out a cinematic universe for X-Men. Well, at the time,
1: we weren't using words like cinematic universe or things like that, but it was very simple. We knew the movie we were making for the budget we were making it, which was quite low, certainly low in today's dollars, even low then. Mm -hmm. So there were so many things we couldn't do which in hindsight was great because it forced all of us to focus on the characters Mm -hmm. and to focus on the emotion of the characters and the pathos of the characters and the inner turmoil of what makes X-Men great about all of the analogies to those who are different and to those who feel different or are made to feel different, Mm -hmm. which is all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what X-Men is about, and that is ultimately why it succeeded. But I remember having discussions, as we always had and still do, about wouldn't it be cool one day if we got the opportunity to do X, Y, or Z? So I think there was a lot of conversations at the time about that. Yeah.
0: So because I was impressed by you, you go over to work for Marvel, and there are these years up until Iron Man where it's, you know, hits and misses and whatever. But what happened essentially that enabled you guys with Iron Man, which was released in 08, but I'm guessing maybe 07 or 06 is when you started making it, like that you guys are going to make your own movies. And just part B to that question is, if you had waited even just a little longer, might we have had none of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because the economy crashed in 08? I mean, would you have been able to get it off the ground if you had waited any longer? That is a good question I've not thought about. But if we hadn't gotten the loan,
1: in other words, yeah, we wouldn't have gotten north, right? it afterwards. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, it was a, it was amazing. And I've always said, nobody would set out to build a film studio like this. <laughs> but... In hindsight, it was amazing because for arguably those years between 99, if you go back to 98 or 97, when I started being a part of the X-Men movie for Fox, all the way through about 2006, when we started our focus on Marvel Studios, I got to see the inner workings of almost every studio in town. Mm -hmm. Every studio except Warner Brothers (laughs) and Disney, but every other studio at the highest levels. And it was an amazing, amazing learning experience. USC film school was great but spending five years in and out of the upper echelons of every studio watching the decisions get made in real time from the executive offices to the uh, writer's room and to the video monitor on set. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have a lot of contractual power on those movies. There were certain things you could intervene on I can't even think of an example. Mm-hmm. I always use the example of a, a Spider-Man suit can't be green, fluorescent green. What are you doing? <laughs> Marvel's intervening. It can't be fluorescent <laughs> green. But there was obviously there was never that issue. So it became much more important to me to become a trusted member of the team, mm-hmm. not because I worked for Marvel or was a part of the quote-unquote IP holder, but because I loved movies and loved stories and wanted to contribute and wanted them to be great. And for the most part, that worked. But we didn't always get our way, and we didn't have the final say. So there were some movies that you can look at in that time period that were excellent. There were some movies in that time period that were not Mm -hmm. as excellent. Mm -hmm. And I got to see how that happened or why that happened, thinking always, one day, if I'm in a position of power, I'll do things this Mm -hmm. way, I'm gonna not do things like that. Mm -hmm. But they were all relatively financially successful, and that allowed Marvel to say, who did not get much of that financial success, Mm that they wanted to have more of that financial success by doing movies themselves. And Avi Arad and David Mazel put a plan together to get that Merrill Lynch financing and, and get the Paramount
0: deal. And now that initial financing and game plan was how extensive? Because you've got to make Iron Man before, you, you know, that's almost like the walk before you can run. So Iron Man's got to come out and hopefully do well and before too much else I would think is going to come into place. But when along the line, how early along the line were you thinking about sort of a bigger picture of, this movie leading i mean it, it had to have been at least during iron man because we obviously have the end credits yeah, yeah. sam jackson well
1: it was the merrill lynch deal was in, as i remember it and again i did not put the merrill lynch deal together got that financing i was the guy in the baseball cap they would bring to the wall street meetings and go see he can make movies and i was like i think i can i've never done it by myself before but yeah we could try it and but we know people and i think that deal was for 10 movies mm-hmm. over five years so it was two movies a year, yeah. and there were a lot of good characters on that list. There were characters on that list. I think Shang-Chi was on that list. Really? I mean, there are characters that are only now being made on that list. But no, my goal 100% was make Iron Man. Mm-hmm. That is, that's the first one. If this doesn't work, it's over anyway. Why was Iron Man first? Iron Man was first because the rights had just reverted to us from a New Line, and because we really believed in the character of Tony Stark, we believed in being able to do a version of a hero that people hadn't seen before, the redemptive arc that he has through the film, and the notion that it's not superpowers, it's a vehicle, basically, and that the vehicle sometimes works and sometimes doesn't,
0: and that it his intellect is the superpower. We thought it was very interesting. And again, if the first one bombs, you're going to have a harder time with subsequent ones. Why basically bet the farm on Robert Downey Jr., who at that point was not everyone's go-to choice. By well, remember,
1: shot. we were making essentially two movies at the same time. We were making the first Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk okay. at the same time. The Incredible Hulk was the ace in the hole, whatever it was. <laughs> that was the same ringer. That, yeah. that was the safe one. Yeah, The Incredible Hulk was the one that you knew right. that's going to work. Iron Man was the risk <laughs> because everybody had heard of the Hulk right. and most people had not heard of Iron Man. And I never thought about it this way before, but to a certain extent, that might have liberated us to say, okay, we've got a Hulk movie, and he turns green, and he gets mad, and people know that, (laughs) and we wanted to do the best version we could on that movie, but Iron Man being so different, we wanted to embrace that, Mm -hmm. and we wanted to embrace the instincts that we'd always had on these movies. One of those instincts was the character is the star. The hero is the marquee name. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to put the star of whatever the number one movie was that weekend that we were casting Mm -hmm. into the movie. We could just find the best actor for the part. Not dissimilar from what Fox did with Hugh Jackman, Mm -hmm. not dissimilar from what Sam had done with Tobey Maguire. They were not giant marquee names. They were perfect actors for those parts. Mm -hmm. Go back to Christopher Reeve, as we talked about in Superman, which is a great, great movie. And that did not always happen on all of those movies, in that six year period before we were Marvel Studios. So it allowed us to say who's
0: best for the role. And when you're auditioning and then signing Downey or subsequent guys, how long of a deal were they signing and how privy were they to, was the larger picture now cementing itself in your own mind as far as you know? we're gonna have, maybe you'll pop into another movie for just a bit and maybe we'll do one with a bunch of characters and then you'll have your. My
1: memory is it was a three picture deal, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: standard. Mm-hmm. At the time, and still now, three pictures mm-hmm. for movies like that. Robert, I think, signed three pictures. And it was during production of Iron Man 1 when we sort of gotten over the hump of we cast it, we're shooting it, we're making it, we know what the movie is. The notion of, okay, if this gets to work, how do we keep doing this? I was at a Comic-Con, our very first Comic-Con appearance in 2006. We were not in the big room of Hall H. Then <laughs> we were in a smaller ballroom. Right. And there's footage of this that occasionally pops up in retrospective pieces. But somebody in the audience asked, Would you ever do the Avengers? And I said, Well, if you look at the characters we do have under this agreement Iron Man, Hulk, Captain America, mm-hmm. Thor, you know, it's not a coincidence that they do lead up to Avengers. And that was true because we'd always dreamed of it. But there was a part of me in that very moment that was like, Oh, that does lead up to Avengers. <laughs> that is what we could do. Because again, the folks had just been
0: make Iron Man one. And. I guess it was very quickly apparent that there was great excitement and interest and pleasure with how Iron Man turned out because it comes out May 2nd, and at the Monday following that opening weekend, you guys immediately announce Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, and the Avengers. Right. And I guess what I'm trying to understand, because I've seen a few of the actors say, it wasn't until something was happening in Rome in 2012 that they got from you the full vision. So how could they have been around for all the way until 2012? We're talking 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, before they got what you were really going for here. Well,
1: I don't know exactly. <laughs> the primary person who tells that story is Ruffalo, yeah, who joined us for the first time with Avengers. Okay, okay. So that makes sense Yes, the uh, from his point of view. <laughs> but also, I think there's another way to look at that. I think what they're really saying is, that was the first time they realized I wasn't just full of hot air. <laughs> right? Because everybody in town has big dreams and talks about big things and this, we're going to do this and that. With the success of Avengers, it had worked because Mm -hmm. for the longest time, Avengers was our horizon line, Mm -hmm. was what we were aiming for. And I'm also kind of a socially awkward guy and find myself around, you know, great actors who are really smart and intelligent. And all I can talk to them about are our movies and what we're thinking and what we're going to (laughs) do. And I think a long time they're like, okay, yeah, anyway, uh, I'm going to go over here. But that (laughs) night because Avengers hadn't opened yet, but was playing quite well in the premieres in Europe, they were just listening more (laughs) (laughs) to what I was saying.
0: To just connect the dots back to your own childhood fascinations. Is it correct that I'd seen one thing where you said basically that the fact that the star Wars film started out with episode four left the impression, oh, there must be things before and after this, and that was the driving reason for thinking about how can we map these out beyond the next one or two? Well,
1: no, I think it's two different things. I think Star Wars and Star Trek and some of my exposure to the comic characters of that day exposed me to epic storytelling, or even, frankly, learning about the Norse or the Roman or the Greek myths, Mm -hmm. the notion of an expanding epic storytelling that encompasses these same characters through many different periods. Mm -hmm. I always loved the idea of sequels. I was always excited (laughs) when a sequel to something I liked was coming out. Mm -hmm. I was often disappointed (laughs) when it was terrible (laughs) or a bummer or didn't live up to what I had in my head Mm -hmm. of what a sequel should be. That has become a driving motivator for me as I produce these movies that I don't ever want our audiences to walk out of one of our follow-up films feeling the way I did in Mm -hmm. some uh, (laughs) not-to-be-named sequels of the the 80s uh, and 90s but I always loved and was never cynical about expansive multi storied epic storytelling I liked getting invested in worlds and in characters and following them through to unexpected places in terms of Marvel that's what they had been doing and have been doing for 80 years in the Mm -hmm. comics Mm -hmm. so when we were looking at ways to set ourselves apart one produce and finish Iron Man 1 and make it as unique an experience as we could because there had been a lot of Marvel movies produced up to that point and we wanted to stand apart from them. One of the ways I knew we could stand apart was not through marquee characters because the definition at that point of a marquee character was did they have a TV show or a movie already or an um, animated series that lasted for years? All of those characters, Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four, had been... Licensed out. Yeah. had been licensed yeah but we had everything else. Uh And having everything else meant we could begin to blend them together and build a universe on the big screen the way it exists in the comic book universe. So it was not an epiphany of any kind beyond simply so much of what we do is replicating that experience that a comic reader has up on the big screen. And one of the great pleasures of that experience is being surprised when a character from another book pops up in somebody else's book. Right. And that is why the Sam Jackson idea came
0: together. We have talked about with Downey already how, you know, you guys and and you were willing to think outside the box with casting. I think the three Chris's are also examples of that where people should remember Hemsworth was pretty unknown in this country. Evans had been part of a not especially successful superhero franchise, and Pratt was kind of a chubby, funny guy on TV, Yes, but it also applies to directors where I don't think there was anything that would have indicated prior to you guys giving them a chance that the Russos, Taika ITD, James Gunn, Kugler, or many of these others that you hired, they'd not done large-scale, effects-heavy movies, so what gave you the confidence that they could handle that? Well, there was lots of indications because, you know, Joan Anf did amazing
1: television, did amazing episodes of some great, great television series. And Taika Waititi did great small movies in New Zealand. A boy being the one that we saw and said, wait a minute, this guy's special. Uh, James had such an irreverent sense and had done these small, after his days of trauma, had done such small, interesting works. Great screenplay with Dawn of the Dead, great movies with Slither and Super. So everyone we've hired, we think, has shown the potential. Then we have a lot of meetings where we talk about a lot of things and make sure uh, that we can all get along for a number of years. Mm-hmm. One point on Iron Man one, I remember saying in the early days with John Favreau, "All right, let's, this is going to be great. This is my first movie, and I'm going to learn from you. And this and together, you know, we're going to be collaborating together every day for two years." And he US "Kevin, if this goes well, we'll be." collaborating together for 10 years <laughs> and that 10 year mark was last year right and we were on he was on set and I said John you're right that's awesome 10 yeah. years <laughs> um but it is about finding new voices and finding fresh voices who can lead us to new places Kugler arguably was one of the most accomplished coming off of Fruitvale and Creed yeah. for sure Creed being a bigger movie than many of the directors we'd worked mm-hmm. with but yes nothing on this level it's also having done the number of movies we'd done, even starting with Iron Man 1, because we'd worked in and around the three Raimi movies, the three X-Men movies, knowing a lot of the great uh, technicians and artists. And
0: Raimi himself was not a, a obvious choice to
1: direct Spider-Man. He, exactly right. Or Brian on the first X-Men. Right. But knowing that you have a, an amazing team to support your filmmaker allows you to put a filmmaker in the captain's seat of a rather large ship, confident that they can steer somewhere new, and the ship will be able to run.
0: So 2009, not that long after you launched this whole enterprise with Iron Man, Disney buys Marvel. $4 billion, I would assume that's going to change things in some that that, that affected your life and and work. So we hear little bits that trickle out, like, you know, maybe with the Avengers, Iger says put in a little more humor or different things where they're having input. How did that affect your day-to-day work? It was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to us
1: you brought up the hypothetical about if David Mazel hadn't gotten that financing Mm -hmm. before the crash, would we have gotten it? Probably not. If Disney hadn't bought us, you wouldn't have seen the movies we've made since then Mm -hmm. for sure. I just don't think it would have been possible. It was wonderful having a home that was 100% invested in what we were doing. And we had great studio partners before that with great marketers who did great work. But at some level, when it's only for whatever percentage distribution percentage, if they've got something they're working on that they've got 100% of versus one that's smaller, even though the experience was very good with them, there were smart, smart people working. I believe they did their best and did great by us because the movies worked and led us to where we are today. It's different when you have a home. When that home is the Walt Disney Studios, (laughs) even before the last eight years and the tremendous success, it is very special. And when you have someone like Bob Iger who spent a lot of money Hmm. and is invested in the success, it makes a big difference. So we really always felt like we were in great hands. Bob himself was always very upfront about if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. People at Pixar had been bought, what, a few years before? Yeah. And they said the same thing. Yep. And 10 years on, we haven't broke yet, right. so they've let us keep going. But it really is the family. It mm-hmm. is having that support. Yes, Bob saw cuts of all of our films and on uh, you're alluding to a, one on Avengers where he wanted a little more celebratory vibe at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm which hit us in a very good spot because we had Jeremy Latcham, and the executive producer on that used to always talk about the Ghostbusters parade, <laughs> the parade at the end of Ghostbusters 1 and how exuberant that was at the end of the movie. Because And, and he'd always joke, Ghostbusters parade. We need a Ghostbusters parade at the end of this movie. We didn't have one. Right. Joss, you know, th- th- we didn't have an idea for a literal parade. Bob gives that note after watching the film. And we go, okay, we're going to think about it. He walks away, and Joss turns to us and goes, Ghostbusters Parade. (laughs) And that is what led to that, that, and Joss did an amazing job of it, seeing the celebrations around the world as we then pan to Nick Fury as he's talking to the
0: council. So the Disney acquisition is one marker in time. Another thing is just recently you've uh, assumed the new title here as chief creative officer. In between, it sounds like the one interesting twist and turn just affecting your life would have been around the end of phase two, beginning of phase three, when in terms of who you were going to be, basically a management restructuring, the way it was reported was that it was because you were kind of into the idea of let's embrace diversity with Black Panther, with Captain Marvel, and you know lean into that, which obviously has proven to be a very wise decision, but that you had faced some resistance to that. Is that correct? That's part of it. I mean, there's lots of
1: sides to the story. You can pick up a Bob Iger's wonderful book, yes, <laughs> The Ride of a Lifetime, right. to learn more. I highly recommend it. But it made sense at that time. We had made 10 movies or more that managerially there was another way to go. And in terms of markers, as you were discussing, another one I'd say that was very important for the history of Marvel Studios and for my history personally Mm -hmm. was when Bob hired Alan Horn. Mm -hmm. Because Alan Horn is such a tremendous leader and such a tremendous mentor. Came on, I think, either just before or just after Avengers 1 came out. And has been both supportive in what we're doing and also has great guidance and reads every draft and watches every cut and isn't versed in the Marvel lore as much as we are, which is important because we always wanna police ourselves to Mm -hmm. not get too far down in the weeds (laughs) that we distance ourselves from an audience. And he and Alan Bergman are great eyes with that, not just from a Marvel weeds perspective, but just from a storytelling and structure and character perspective. Mm -hmm. So at that point, soon after that, it became clear that it was just, would be much more efficient
0: to report directly to uh, Alan. Yeah. Can you explain what the last, let's say, 18 months have been like for you? In the sense that within that period, Black Panther came out and was such a huge success, but also socially impactful in the way that it was trailblazing in the way it was also getting recognition that no superhero film had ever gotten from the Academy, which I imagine might feel nice to have shown that kind of respect in that way. Then you have Captain Marvel, which I guess other than Wonder Woman was the first female centric superhero movie that to really do well and then with Endgame, where you know it's essentially the end of uh, an era for all of you guys just what has this year and a half 18 months been like for you does 18 months take us back to panther is that i is guess that maybe basically... it's just well that's what i'm referring to so yeah it, it's been i go even even
1: before that with ragnarok that uh, a third thor film which we knew there was more to do there I wouldn't say the world was banging down our door for a third Thor film, to be honest with you. And for that movie, thanks to Chris, thanks to Taika, redefining what that character could be was very exciting. And then Panther, and then Spider-Man Homecoming, and getting to do the first MCU Spidey in Captain Marvel, as you say, leading into Infinity War. It's been remarkable, and it's been extremely uh, busy, and remarkably, uh, there was a lot of angst during that period. Because we had a lot to prove announcing these movies— There was a lot of expectations behind Black Panther and Captain Marvel and Infinity War and Endgame. And to meet those expectations and exceed them in many cases, I'm still processing, (laughs) to be honest with you. Because for five years, our goal and our superstitions was delivering on the promise of a finale in a way that wasn't expected, Mm -hmm. in a way that people weren't anticipating. And seeing audiences around the world respond to these characters that we've lived with for 10 plus years, they've lived with for 10 plus years, was a really remarkably emotional experience. Most importantly, as they say, it's the friends you meet along the way. Right. We learned so much from Ryan Coogler. I was texting with him last night. He's working on uh, a treatment for the next one. Is such a remarkable man, and such an intelligent man, and that entire experience of Black Panther was uh, transformative for our studio. We already mentioned Joe and Anthony Russo. Uh, Chris and Steve are screenwriters who've done, I think, uh, I'm not sure they will ever get the credit they deserve for the amount of work they've done over the years for us, most specifically uh, leading into Endgame, to have that many characters and that many storylines come together in such a ultimately small and personal movie. Mm-hmm. And even though it's three hours, and even though it was expensive, <laughs> and even though there are a lot of visual
0: effects, it is ultimately a character journey. And, you know, I guess not just limiting it to the last 18 18- 20 months, whatever, over the course of these 22 movies, your own life has significantly changed, right? I mean, you have a lot of family members and things going on that were not the case when Iron Man came out. I
1: got married in 2008 at the Beverly Hills Courthouse and stepped away from William Hurt ADR session for Incredible (laughs) Hulk to do it. Yes, and my first child was born in 2009. And I would get phone calls from the hospital about uh, Mickey Rourke's uh, deal for Iron Man 2. <laughs> and then my son was born in the November after Avengers 1 had come out in 2012. Wow. So those oh, were, yeah. yeah, yes, of, of my favorite accomplishments over yes, the last those. decade, <laughs> those are the three. They're up there. Yeah. Those are the three.
0: Uh, okay, so with the last just under 10 minutes, if that's okay with you, I want to do something we generally end on where it's sort of first thing that comes to your mind and just you know, whatever that may be, so Disney, the most recent I guess acquisition would be Fox, and I guess theoretically now X men and Deadpool are in the family. Is there any reason to believe they would not any reason why they would not be integrated with the avengers and and these characters as well at some point? No, no reason to believe that Marvel's TV series on Disney plus are now part of your portfolio. Do you imagine a, that there will be people going back and forth between the big and small screen? Is that the game plan or is it speci- You're sort of segregated?
1: No, it's specifically the plan that the Marvel Cinematic Universe will be in theaters and be on Disney Plus to go full circle to USC. When I went to USC, it was called the USC School of Film and Television. Mm-hmm. It is now called USC School of Cinematic Arts cinematic because arts. the cinematic arts cross over. So we are certainly doing cinematic art level productions for disney plus falcon winter soldier is currently shooting and i just yesterday got back from the set of wandavision which is shooting all of those characters will undergo transformative i hope very exciting experiences in that show and then uh, go into our movies
0: we recently so they'll
1: go back and forth some characters like we've announced she hulk and miss marvel and moon knight you will meet for the first time in a disney plus show and then they will go into the movies but the mcu now will go back and forth got it
0: Recently learned that you'll be working on a Star Wars film, which is very exciting. What do you most want to bring to that universe?
1: I love that world, and I love the notion of exploring new people and new places in that universe. But that's sort of all that can be said for now.
0: Bob Iger and Mark Hamill and people involved with the Star Wars franchise have said that they acknowledge that there has been, at, at certain points, a Star Wars fatigue. People just had—maybe were a little inundated— what is the secret to avoiding it? You never seems to have affected Marvel which has put out more movies in a year than Star Wars ever did. So what how do you avoid that? Well, I think they've avoid I mean they've made 5 movies in about 5 years and it's made over 5 billion dollars.
1: So I think <laughs> they're doing just fine. With Star Wars and Rise of Skywalker looks incredible
0: to me. This week there was some James Dean news that they're going to digitally bring him into movies. How do you feel about taking people who aren't alive or aren't Able to consent and putting them in movies.
1: Yeah, I think it's a little. I think it's strange. I think it's a little
0: weird. I do not know the
1: specifics of the James Dean situation. I've read a a couple of headlines about it.
0: Second to last one. There's been this obviously news cycle very recently with some comments by Martin Scorsese, and I just have to ask you, what do you say to? to, I haven't heard. I haven't heard about this. (laughs) What is this? Just well, I mean, the fact that if there are some people out there who feel, and I know they're probably a quite a minority, but if that. Superhero movies are detrimental to the business, that in some ways it's been overrun by remakes and sequels and adaptations, or that people are dating movies before having a concept. What is the response to that, to Scorsese, to people who feel that superhero movies are not a positive thing? I think
1: that's not true. I think it's unfortunate. I think myself and everybody that works on these movies loves cinema, loves movies, love going to the movies, loves to watch a communal experience in a movie theater full of people. And we've been very lucky that our movie theaters are often full of people when our movies play. And that's a very special thing. I love all types of movies and always have, which is why we try to blend our films with different genres and take the success that we've had and do different things, which is why we haven't made an Iron Man movie since 2013. Mm -hmm. We did Civil War. We had our two favorite most popular characters get into very serious theological and physical altercation. We killed half of our characters at the end of the movie. I mean I think it's fun for us to take our success and use it to take risks and go in different places. Everybody has a different definition of cinema, everybody has a different definition of art, everybody has a different definition of risk I guess. All I know is I'm surrounded by people 24 hours a day who live and breathe and love cinema and some people don't think it's cinema. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Everyone's entitled to repeat that opinion. Everyone's entitled to write op-eds about that opinion. And uh, I look forward to what will happen next. But in the meantime, we're
0: going to keep making movies. And that's, I guess, the last question is just, you have said in another interview I read recently that, you know, it was a long time before Westerns petered out or musicals petered out. Can you imagine a day when the public's massive interest in superhero movies would wane or when your own interest would wane i mean do you, or is this something you're going to do until you drop
1: of course i can imagine that i've imagined that since the day i started at this company <laughs> 20 years ago right um and i've wondered every few years if i want to stay or if i want to go and the truth is i've always said i'll go when i'm bored mm-hmm. or hopefully just before i'm bored we're doing so much right now in so many different ways with so much support of this studio, Disney Plus being a big part of that. Mm-hmm. If you could have seen the set of WandaVision that I just came from, it is unlike anything we've done before. It's unlike anything this this uh, genre has done before. And yes, if you are turned off by the notion of a human having extra abilities, and that means everything is that in which that happens is lumped into the same category, then they might not be for you. But the truth is, These are all, like all great science fiction stories, parables. And parables that we get to play with with different film genres, and now we're getting to play with different television genres, which I'm excited about. And as long as we're allowed to continue to take these risks and take characters that people haven't heard of, Chloe Zhao is on the Canary Islands right now with (laughs) 10 amazing actors shooting The Eternals, Mm -hmm. a group of characters that nobody has ever heard of Mm -hmm. outside of a very small group of people. It is a very big movie. It is a very expensive movie. And we are making it because we believe in her vision and we believe in what those characters can do. And we believe that we need to continue to grow and evolve and change and push our genre forward. That's a risk if I've ever heard one.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming over. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sons Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wiggler's series regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening.
1: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?